Welcome to the All for Inclusion podcast. This is the place where the conversation starts. You will hear plenty of stories on how disability has impacted people from school through to work, the struggles they have faced and how they've overcome them. There will be lots of tips on how businesses, society and people can become more inclusive. Here's your host, Scott Whitney. Welcome everybody to the third season of the All for Inclusion pod. Just wanted to share with you before we introduce our guest today, the reason for the sudden ending of each season that's happened. It's all tied in with, with my own health and getting to a point where there's no more podcasts pre-recorded and just wanting to ensure that the podcasts come out smooth and make sure they're done to, to the quality that I'd like them to be done. There has been a little bit of a gap, but it is great to be back. And it's great to be back actually with someone that, that I've spoken to a little while ago. And, and it's great to be able to have her on the podcast. So joining me today is Rosemary Richings. Rosemary, would you like to introduce yourself to, uh, to all of those listening today? All right. So thanks for having me. And I'm glad that I'm part of being on the mend. That's a real honor. Anyways, so I am Rosemary and I'm a freelance writer, editor, and public speaker specializing in neurodiversity and disability. And I also have a book out called Stumbling Through Space and Time, Living Life with Dyspraxia. And in terms of diagnosis, I'm a dyspraxic neurodivergent person myself. Excellent. I think if we look at what I think, feel personally, what a lot of people don't feel dyspraxia is something that a lot of people are familiar with. A lot of people potentially get it confused a little bit with other conditions that can sound similar to it, but very different. So common one being dyslexia and then potentially dyscalculia as well. So would you mind just explaining to people what dyspraxia is, if that's okay? Yeah, it's a coordination of movement condition. So it relates to the planning of movements. It relates to motor skills, such as basic things around looking after yourself, like like brushing your hair, brushing your teeth, doing your makeup, tasks like that. Motor skills, so team sports, arts and crafts. It relates to also your sense of space and time, navigation, how you would perceive the concept of how much time something would take, whether you're going up or down a hill, and also verbal instructions around movement. And there's always a disconnection in your body of responding to that. And a lot of people who, um, who follow the podcast will know I've got a condition called FND, neurological disorder, which means that the signal from my brain to my body can almost short circuit on the way, which can cause different outcomes from my body than what I want it to. So where we're looking at dyspraxia, is the signal in your, is it in the brain that's 
being confused or is it after it's left the brain as well? It's the brain that's being confused. And I would say it's everything from things that a lot of people might take for granted. We're in a crowded space and you're trying to figure out which direction to go. A signal might cross and you might have some issues with understanding like, oh, what should I do next? Or even if someone says turn left, something might get crossed in your brain. It's all in the brain and it's what happens directly afterwards. Yeah, I get yeah. And uh, and how old was you when you was uh, when you was diagnosed with the condition? I am very unusual in the sense that I was diagnosed really young. I was only 4, so there's honestly very little I understand. I remember about the actual diagnosis itself. But I feel like the most complicated part of the journey, there's a lot of privilege in being diagnosed that young, but the most complicated part of the journey was trying to understand that part of myself while I was trying to understand the things we're all always trying to figure out about our own bodies as we grow and progress and learn to live independently. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's when you think of it, a lot of people who are diagnosed later on in life. The advantage for that is they've already done a good part of learning about your body, et cetera, as well. But I guess if you're at the age of five, six, when your brain's a sponge, did you know at that age you was dis- you was dyspraxic or did your parents keep that from you? They told me I was part of the process, but because I was so young, it was hard to perceive it really as a difference. It was just like part of who I was. And it also made me quite prone to a lot of stigma and bullying as well, because I didn't know that how I was behaving was any different. I just was behaving how I was behaving. Yeah. And so how did it really impact you in school and and education? I was lucky enough to be in the special education system quite early on. That's always the best part of being diagnosed early. So I was getting extra time on tests. I was getting extra time on assignments and things like that. But I learned all the key childhood milestone things a lot later, like tying your shoelaces, riding your bike, how to put clothes and makeup on on yourself independently. A lot later, I had to go through extensive OT in the early days. And that also made me feel quite signaled out as well. Yeah, being signaled out, then that have uh, like a knock-on effect with mental health as well. Yeah, I talk quite openly about self-esteem issues as being something I overcame through being part of a lot of student theater later on in my life, right around like my teen years and my early 20s when I went off to university, I was part of a really much more socially progressive peer group where a lot of people were either coming out as gay or they were learning that they had issues of their own. And it wasn't until then that I started to face these things and see them on an emotional level as something that I could see positive in and that there I could accept support and still feel like I could try to squeeze better into the system. Yeah. A lot of people, when they're listening, will start thinking about how it affects you really day to day. So obviously we're out of school now and you're working, doing freelance work, which we'll come on to a bit in a moment. 
but your day-to-day life, what's the, how does it impact you each and every day? I basically, I have to, in order to do everyday tasks like preparing food or navigating my way around my everyday environment, I have to take things really like one thing at a time, one step at a time. Otherwise, because it also comes with a lot of sensory issues too, much like you'd see in something like autism. I have to very carefully plan things out as to not get anxiety, to not get overwhelmed, to focus on what information I'm taking in my environment. But when freelancing, I would say the one thing that attracted me to it for so many years after I tried regular jobs for a bit was that at least I, it, it was the one instance where I had control over my environment that like, I didn't have to ask anyone's permission for working like three hours as opposed to eight hours or needing to go lie down for a bit or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so does routine, is that something that, that helps you? Yeah. Routine is very important for me. I found that once I established that with freelancing more so, it really meant I could stay much more focused on what I needed much more immediately. And my spouse has a type one diabetes. And I think that's part of where we really get along in terms of living together. <laughs> is that he really has created the routine that helps balance out creating routine, but also like me not getting so focused and passionate on what I'm doing that I'll forget something important like eating a meal or something like that. Yeah. And, and then if you've got a simple, I know some people with different conditions will say to leave the house, I want to, I'll make sure I've got this done. How does one piece of that jigsaw being removed, how does that impact it? Yeah, I mean, it really throws off my balance if my everything isn't exactly, I have to be very systematic about how I store things. Otherwise, I'll just waste a lot of time or lose things easily. That's part of my issues too, where everything has to be very consistent in terms of how I organize, where I put things, I have to keep very detailed lists. Otherwise, I'm going to urge an appointment. I'm going to waste tons of time looking for a simple thing like my keys. And then parts of the day will just be gone and I'll be anxious and overwhelmed. And that's never a productive state to be in. No. Was that all self-taught, those mechanisms to, to calm yourself? For the most part, yeah. I was habitually keeping like diaries and things like that for years. But it was heavily influenced by when I was a preteen, when I was in the special education system, I had a great teacher that noticed I was like having a really hard time keeping organized. And we started to like really work on developing a system for making sure I was writing things down and that I wasn't like falling behind on on basic deadlines and things like that. Excellent. So when you went into, into work to start with your first two or three jobs, how was it settling into work and carrying out your sort of daily tasks, et cetera? 
pre-freelancing, I would admit it wasn't great. I had some customer service jobs here and there, and they really, I was surrounded by this really North American, you need to be very outgoing and chatty and things like that kind of approach. And that wasn't good for me because that meant too that someone like me that's much more neurodivergent and wouldn't necessarily always want to like approach people or might need a minute or whatever. It meant I was discouraged to exhibit my own traits and my strengths weren't as celebrated at first, but it was only once I had some chances with like more office administrative things, I started to figure out what I was good at and see some level of value in what I was good at as well as figuring out like how I could work around and find a place in that system. But I still felt there was a sense of shame about needing to work in a specific way. And that was very difficult for me. And that was very much as post-university, that was very much part of my decision. I was like, I have all these skills. I know what I'm good at. I grew up in a very entrepreneurial household, so I knew how to start with freelancing. I was already starting to talk to some of the right people. And I was like, I just need to do things my way. And this is a means of doing that. Yeah. When you talk about, about shame, was that, do you think, an internal thing? Or do you think that was, or did you feel that it was put on you by the way others were around you? It was a bit of both. There was also, there was a sense of passive aggression of, oh, why would you go to a quiet space for a minute? Why would you need to have your headphones on? Why wouldn't you come chat in the break room for a minute? That's weird. But also, I feel like at that point, I was still working on the self-esteem issues a little bit. So there was a bit of internal and a bit of apology about saying, I'm so sorry, I need to work in a specific way. Definitely. And some of those things, if you look at maybe the, the better businesses now for disability inclusion, neurodiversity inclusion. Most of these businesses have those ways of working throughout the businesses, quiet spaces, sensory rooms that, that you can go to. But obviously back then, even the top two or 3% of businesses wouldn't have had a sensory room in. So there's been a big shift, but there's probably, there is so much more that needs to be done. So yeah. when you come to freelancing, then you said you had, it, it suits you better. What is that biggest thing for you when it comes to, what's that big difference? It's just having that permission to just explore what I need to work, what I need to be in a natural environment and just to there, I, especially as I've gotten older, I've realized there are days where. I might like sleep less or I might have pain issues or whatever, just, just to have permission to just slow down for a minute and pick how I work and just approach things in a way that feels natural to me. Yeah. Okay. So if we, if I'm going to, if I'm going to put you on the spot and try to give you, um, Take away, unfortunately, your freelance work and say, Rosemary, you're not able to freelance anymore. You need to work for a business. But I'm also going to give you the, the magic power of 
being able to tell the business three rules that they must put into place for you, what would those, what would those rules be? Three rules, I would say sort of ability to take a lot of breaks with and go somewhere quiet whenever need be. The other one would be an ability to limit how many meetings I'm doing on an average day, how much information I'm taking in. Yeah, though those two are really the main ones, but just very clear communication, more than one way for information to be communicated, not just written, but things just very visually and concisely conveyed. Yeah. That, that last one, I think, is really important because if you're looking at the bigger picture, we're not just talking about me and my condition and you and your condition. Communication, even if we're, we're talking about everyone, people who are able-bodied, et cetera, they have no disability, neurodiversity, health condition, people still take information in in, in different ways. So... Communication is vital for all businesses to get yeah. it. What's, what sort of tips can you give to businesses when it comes to communication? Yeah, I always stress really just, yeah, the importance of having communication in more than one way so that the message doesn't get lost. So that like someone who prefers things in video can get in video, someone who prefers things written down can get it written down. Someone who is better at having a lengthy conversation has that option available. I always think you mentioned video there. Video is a, video is a big one. But when we're looking at video, ensure there's people who may be deaf or hard of hearing who prefer it to be by video. But the videos don't have captions. So it's yeah. ensure that all your videos have captions and you can transcribe or is it there's transcriptions of the conversations as well for people who who prefer it not to be on a video form and and let's not overcomplicate things because the captions are there as as an accessibility aid but what we started to find is all of these blocks coming out of your mouth with one word at a time firing things out which are then more inaccessible than accessible and, and making sure that things are clear for people and used in the right way. So can you tell me a little bit about your, your book, please, Rosemary, if you don't mind? Oh, yeah. It's called Stumbling Through Space and Time. The number one question I always get is about, like, why I called it Stumbling Through Space and Time. And a lot has to do is it's the most consistent mental state I've felt throughout my life of being a dyspraxic person. And I've always felt like a lot of spaces I've inhibited have been an environment I feel like I'm stumbling through to navigate it. And uh, it's written through my own story. I used elements from my own story to educate people on the dyspraxic way of thinking and the way I have experienced it. But I also had a lot of conversations with people who were there over the years with my own journey to get a better sense of perspective and the dyspraxia advocacy community at large to get a sense of it as well. Yeah, and also added in a bit of research there to make sure that it's taking a more global perspective 
into account. And I found tons of diary entries over the years that were part of my process for understanding it better. So yeah, it, it basically uses elements from my own story to educate people yeah. on the condition. And mentioned a dyspraxic community. What is the, what's the dyspraxic community like? And where's the best place for people to, if they've either got dyspraxia themselves or they know someone who is dyspraxic, where's the best place for them to go to, to hear how other people are doing? I think it's like a lot of disability advocacy communities in the sense that the downside is there is some level of drama. That's important to keep in mind, but there's also some real positive as well, where there's things like Dyspraxic Help For You run by Billy Stanley that I've done a lot of stuff on. I've helped him with some of his resources. There's Dyspraxia Magazine, and there's a lot of the YouTube stuff of Crystal Shaw. She does a, releases, releases a lot of really cool social media content to educate people from a lived experience point of view. And these are really like the bright sparks to me of what's going on in the community. Excellent. So there are, it's good that there are places for people to be able to go and learn about themselves, learn about their family members, learn about their, their friends. And I think that's, that's always important. Yeah. Okay. Finally then, Rosemary, if you don't mind, if someone goes and gets a diagnosis today, or dyspraxia. I'm sure there's going to be lots of things going through their minds. What bit of advice would you, would you give to them? It's really overwhelming because it's a lot of really psychological deep dive. It's like going to therapy or something like that, where you like, you have to get a lot of MRI scans. You, you have to go and see like occupational therapists you have to go see therapists that specializes in neurodiversity stuff just really take a moment to breathe and just just take care of yourself as you go through it because you're going to go on a really intense journey but it would be worth it in the end excellent thank you and then have you got any sort of final thoughts that you'd like to leave with for people listening today i just say there's a lot of bright lights going on in the neurodiversity community it's easy to feel cynical because I feel like it's often quite corporatized, but really just, yeah, just pay attention to the lived experience voices out there because I think there's something really growing and progressing over the last little while. Yeah. And I think that growth, that progression is something that's true across disability as a whole. And what you're actually finding with that is you're finding, um, people coming up about dyspraxia, people coming up about different conditions and makes it easier to be able to find people who, who can inspire you to, to take that next step yourself in your journey, whatever that step may be. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the All for Inclusion pod season three. We're going to be back weekly again. We're going to be using some of our webinars and bringing out some of the best bits from our webinars and our disability inclusion networking speakers to be able to come in so you can listen to some reruns of those. We're going to have some amazing guests like Rosemary today 
And uh, like I said, it will be back weekly again. So thank you so much for listening. And finally, thank you so much for joining us today, Rosemary. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the All for Inclusion podcast. We'd love you to subscribe and to help other podcast listeners find us more easily. Please leave us a five-star rating and a review. And of course, feel free to pass the pod by sharing it with your family and friends. Remember, the podcast is available every Wednesday and keep an eye out for additional bonus episodes. See you next time on the All for Inclusion podcast.